Well, good morning, Redeemer family. It's, uh, it's good to be together. It's good to rejoice and to sing of God's goodness to us. Well, we're gonna be uh, in the gospel of Luke in chapter seven. So you can turn there and as, as we read just a minute ago, you can follow along with us. Well, we're, we're suckers for restaurant bread, aren't we? And we're, just, we're just suckers for it. We go for it every time. Um, and this is fine. Like, it's good. I mean, maybe it's fine. For some of it's probably not as fine as others. Uh, some of you should probably eat more of the bread. Some of us should eat less. Um, but uh, it's okay. Look, you can go to Goodson's, right? And you can enjoy the bread. You can go to El Tiempo and you can enjoy the chips. Uh, because at those restaurants, after you order your food at the end, you can like get a box. And if you ate too much bread, if you ate too many chips, then you can put your food in the box. You can take it home. You can eat it later. But this is not the case Uh, if you can't make that same mistake at a Brazilian steakhouse. You see, if you do that there, you done messed up. Like you made the mistake. Uh, you've, You've got this fixed amount, you've paid a fixed amount of money to eat an endless amount of meat. Right, this is how the, the deal works. And, and don't get me wrong, the, the bread is amazing and I've, I've made this mistake, uh, but it's just there to tantalize you. Uh, it's there to redirect you away from the meat. The meat costs them more money to make than the bread. Uh, and and, and this, is, this is what we're like, isn't it? Easily impressed by the wrong things. Easily tricked, easily flattered, easily manipulated. But what impresses Jesus? What amazes him? What sort of person does he move toward? He's not like us, is he? He's not drawn to the outwardly spectacular, the one with the credentials. He's not tricked by the one who puts on a good show. No, he's drawn to those that even we wouldn't be. He looks to the heart. He looks for the low. And he's compassionate to the broken. So as we move into chapter seven today, uh, Jesus's sermon has just ended and he's moving into two scenes that we're gonna see today of ministry. And in these scenes, we're gonna see encounters that Jesus has with two very different types of people, a Roman centurion and a grieving mother. And as we look at today's text, I want us to see what what moves the heart of the Savior. What, What draws the heart of Jesus? I want us to see four things. Number one, Jesus responds to humility. Number two, Jesus commends faith. Number three, Jesus sees our grief. And number four, Jesus confronts death. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you're with us. We praise you that we can sing it and mean it. Hallelujah, we're free. By the grace that you have given us, by Jesus' life, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. We are set free from sin. We can come to you. We can, we can listen to your word and we can, we can apply it to our life by your spirit. You enable us to do that. So would you help us this morning? Without you, we will not be able to do those things. Without your spirit at work in us, we won't have ears to hear. And so, Father, we also lift up our, our brother Josh, our sister Laura. We lift up their whole family. We lift up this new baby that you're bringing to them. And God, we just ask that you would, that you would place your hand of blessing on their life. God, as they, as they depart for Japan, would you give them safety? Uh, would you give them uh, health? And Father, would you bless their ministry there? Would you draw many Japanese people to yourself? 
through them and through many Japanese people, Christians that believe in you, would you draw so many more to yourself? So God, we, we lift all this to you today in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, number one, Jesus responds to humility. As we read in, in chapter seven here in verse one, that when he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his, ser- of his servant. Um, so, so we're coming fresh off of this long but wonderful sermon that Jesus has been preaching. There's these powerful teachings about humility and about the kingdom. Here's what it looks like to lower yourself to build your life upon Jesus, to love your enemies even, to not think too highly of yourself, to take the beam out of your eye and and to go low, to be gentle in the way that you serve and help others. So so the sermon ends and everyone's probably still talking about the lessons that Jesus has taught as they walk into Capernaum. And who do we meet? A centurion. So who is this guy? He doesn't sound like what we would imagine being the embodiment of the sermon. Like, okay, we heard this sermon about gentleness and lowness, and then we need a soldier. Um, he, he sounds like the strong military guy, you know, the few, the proud, the centurion, right? Uh, so, so maybe, maybe, maybe this guy's like the bad guy. We're meeting the bad guy here. He's the bad guy in the story. Um, I mean, because we would think that maybe centurion's no joke, right? Uh, he's basically an army captain. History says uh, that centurions were tested soldiers, leaders, ready and willing to die for the cause. Uh, the word centurion means that he had a, a charge of 100 men, a century. So he's a man with some clout in the city. But what we find out is that our, maybe our gut impression isn't what we, uh, isn't, what, isn't real reality. He isn't the proud dominating soldier. Yes, he may be strong, but he's a man of care and kindness, a man of humility. So notice a few things that stand out about this centurion. <clears throat> First, He's a Gentile. And yet as a Gentile man, not of the Jewish faith, he's not too proud to ask the Jewish teacher for help. And he does so in front of others. He's not embarrassed. Second, he's desperate for healing. Not for his own family member, not for one of his troops, but for a servant. The servant would likely be a a, a man with very few rights, someone assigned to the command of the centurion, But the language that he uses when he speaks of the servant is telling. He doesn't see the servant as simply an asset. uh, Luke Luke uses the phrase that that he was highly valued, meaning this is someone who is dear to the centurion, more like a member of his household. Matthew's gospel tells us that this servant was paralyzed, that he was in agony, but the centurion cares for him. He has compassion toward his servant. And so we have to see this scene as like, this is a massive long shot, but he's going to call out anyway. He's not saying, Jesus, help me. He's saying, Jesus, I just need somebody to help this guy. Somebody help my servant. Lastly, we notice in verse three, when he sends, uh, who does he send to speak to Jesus? He sends some Jewish leaders. And this is such an interesting kind of mishmash, Uh, a centurion, a Roman centurion, 
sending Jewish leaders to go talk to Jesus. Look at verse four. It says, when they reached Jesus, they, uh, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So we see that the centurion has this kind of positive relationship with Jewish leaders in the area, so much so that they're willing to go on his behalf. They're in the centurion's corner. They're, they're telling Jesus, this is a good dude, Jesus. Uh, you should help him. They even remarked that he loves Israel. He built us a synagogue. So, so this is not your ordinary Roman centurion. He, he's been kind to those that he rules, kind to his enemies, both to the Jews and then also kind to his servant that he rules over. Some have said that we may even be seeing in this centurion the fruit of faith, the fruit of saving faith, something that's beginning. Maybe not a convert yet, but certainly at least someone who fears God. He's even helping these Jews to worship. But I think we have to ask, it kind of begs the question when we're reading, so what is happening? Why are these Jewish leaders helping this centurion? And why are they here with Jesus? Because if you really think about the relationship that Jesus has had with Jewish leaders thus far in the text, it's not so good, is it? Remember when he forgave the paralytic? The Jewish leaders, what did they do? They murmured, he's a blasphemer. When he ate and drank with a tax collector, what did they do? They complained. You're associating with sinners. What are you doing? When he healed on the Sabbath, we read that they were filled with rage. And even back in chapter four, as his ministry began, when Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue and said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing, what did they do? They wanted to throw him off a cliff. And so now here come more Jewish leaders and they're going, hey, Jesus, could you uh, help us out? I don't think we're supposed to see the Jewish leaders in this story as the good guys. I think Luke is showing us a little contrast here. We have the Jews, these leaders, and why are they here? They're coming to Jesus for someone else, yes, but why? They're coming because he sent them, and why are they willing to go? He's been nice to us. He helped us build a synagogue. And they asked, as they asked Jesus, what reasons do they give Jesus for helping him? They're saying, oh, Jesus, he's a worthy man. He's a good man, Jesus. You gotta do it, Jesus. Look what he's doing for Israel. Look what he's doing for your people, Jesus. You need him on your team. You need to help him out. He's gonna be so grateful when you help him that he'll, he'll help Israel even more. What are they doing? They're trying to leverage Jesus. He's a good man, Jesus. You want this man to be happy with you. Help him out. He's helped us. They are not suddenly awed by the power of Jesus. There's no mention of that. They aren't drawn to his preaching about the kingdom. They aren't even filled with compassion for a dying servant. No, they just want to use Jesus. They want Jesus to do a little dance, to help out this centurion, not to show his power, but so that they might benefit. What warning did Jesus just give a few verses earlier in his teaching? He said, if you only love the people who love you in return, what good is that? Even sinners do that. And here it is, live and in person, these Jewish leaders, they want to show love to the centurion. Why? Because he's been good to them. And Luke is saying, I want you to notice the difference here. 
We have a pagan soldier who cares for and loves his powerless servant, who shows kindness to the Jews, to his enemies, those who hate him. And he's so humble that he doesn't even feel worthy to ask Jesus for help. Humility on display. And then we have the leaders of Israel using this non-believer, using Jesus like a rabbit's foot. Oh, that we would humble ourselves before the mighty power of the savior like the centurion. God is not our genie. He is not the one that we manipulate for our happiness. No, he is God. We are not worthy of his help, but still he comes to us. Still he helps us. Still he moves to us. I love that verse six says, simply Jesus went with them. So Jesus is seeing through what's happening. He's seeing through what the Jewish leaders are, are saying. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going, I'm going for that man. And number two, Jesus commends faith. Verse six, Jesus went with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. So, so the humility of this centurion just keeps on coming out. Instead of sending out this royal convoy uh, to, to usher Jesus into town and into his home, what does the centurion send? He just sends some of his friends. And what does he tell his friends to say? He says, call him Lord. The centurion, a servant of Caesar, begins by calling Jesus Lord. Don't miss that. Lord, I'm not worthy. That's what he says. I'm not deserving of your help. Isn't this the opposite of what the Jewish leaders had just said? They said, Jesus, you've got to help him. He's a worthy man. But the centurion knows better. I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. And then at the end of verse seven, he says, but say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. This man says, I am not worthy, but, but he believes some powerful stuff about Jesus, doesn't he? I'm coming to you, Jesus, because you have power. You can heal my servant with just a word. And then he goes on to paint a really interesting picture here um, to show, ex I think, to, to show Jesus exactly who he sees him to be. This is what he says in verse eight. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's saying, interestingly, to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we have some things in common. I'm like you, and here's how. I too am a man under authority. I'm submitted to the will of Caesar. You're a man under authority, Jesus. You're submitted to your father. I have command over a hundred soldiers. They do whatever I tell them. And Jesus, you have a command. See, we're similar. This is a really strange comparison I think he's making. And I think we, it sounds strange in our ears. But what does Jesus say about the comparison he's making? Look at verse nine. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. 
And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith in Israel. Jesus was amazed. This is the only time in the gospels that we read that Jesus was amazed about something. That, that's pretty astounding. I haven't seen faith like this in Israel, Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is impressive. I'm amazed by this. And so we have to understand, okay, we gotta figure out why. Like, what, why does this faith amaze Jesus? And he, here it is. Here's what I think the, that the centurion is saying to Jesus. He's saying, look, I understand authority. I appreciate leadership. I'm a chain of command guy. I know where I fall in the chain of command. There are limits to my authority. My power only goes so far. I have this servant and he does what I tell him to do, but not now. Now he has a new master. Sickness is his master. Death is his coming ruler. And my authority does nothing. Sickness doesn't listen. Death won't do what I say. Oh, but your power, Jesus, your authority, when you speak, the earth obeys. People respond. The lame walk. Fevers and sickness are at your command. So say the word, Jesus. Heal my precious servant, my precious friend. If you say it, it'll happen. I don't have that sort of command, he's saying. But Jesus, you do. And Jesus is going, this guy gets it. He's amazed. What a miracle of faith. He's a Gentile and a soldier at that. When anyone trusts Jesus, it's amazing. Parents, when you, when you see uh, one of your children trusting you, actually believing that something you told them is right and, and walking accordingly, right? You, when you see that, it, it makes you happy, right? It makes your heart swell just a little bit. But imagine day after day from city to city, Jesus, as he, as he puts himself forward before the people, he experiences rejection and judgment from the very people that he grew up going to the synagogue with. What a discouraging experience that must have been. They think he is a fraud, a blasphemer. And in this very scene, Jewish leaders are trying to manipulate him for their own benefit. And amidst all that rejection, an outsider, a centurion, a very unlikely guy, outdoes all of the faith of Israel. Someone who didn't grow up hearing the stories of Abraham and of Moses. Someone who never had heard the stories of God's rescue, how he rescued his people from enemy after enemy, how he forgave their sin. And yet here he stands anyway, saying, Lord, there's no power like yours. Only you can heal my servant. So how does this guy believe? I don't know but he does. And, and Jesus is amazed. What a bittersweet moment this must have been for Jesus. And notice when Jesus says what he says, who does he say it to? 
he turns to the crowd. He turns to the many Jews that are following him in the crowd and he says, this is better than any faith I've seen in Israel. What he believes is what Israel was supposed to believe. But they're faithless. They're proud. They think they're healthy, but they're really sick. They think they're worthy because of their genealogy. So they don't think they need him. They won't come to him. But this soldier says, I'm not worthy. I have no claim. But Lord, I'm asking, would you help me? This kind of faith is a sight for sore eyes to our Savior. Finally, in verse 10, Luke tags this last verse of this scene on. It's almost like, it's almost like Luke forgot, but he's like, oh yeah, I gotta tell you this part. Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. So, oh yeah, the servant was healed. Just, you just need to know that. And he was healed. We never even see the servant. Long distance style, the servant is healed. Paralysis removed, illness cured. It's almost like Jesus is saying, yes, I have power to save. But seriously, did you see the centurion's faith? That's the sort of faith you need. Can you believe in me the way that he did? This is the miracle within the miracle. The proud soldier humbled before Jesus, believing in his power to save. Number three, Jesus sees our grief. So now we almost, it's all, this is almost a jarring transition. We move from the faith of the centurion and his healed servant to a pretty horrific scene of grief. Remember, this is, this is real. We talk about this a lot. This is not a passion play, right? They're not, the centurion scene's not happening over here while they readjust the set over here so that he can walk across stage to visit with the, the, the grieving mother. No, he's, they're, they're leaving this, this amazing scene where he's interacted with uh, the centurion's friends. And as the crowd of people are walking with Jesus, still trying to wrap their heads around what happened, as they walk, the sound of their talking begins to be drowned out by the sounds of weeping. They're nearing the city of Nain. Look at verse 11. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. And just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. So they walk up on a funeral. And at the funeral, a body is being carried out on a cart, basically an an open coffin carried by a group of men. And when you see a dead body in the Bible uh, being, being transported, rest assured, someone just died. It may sound obvious, but somebody just died. This isn't like death followed by a service planning meeting uh, with the assistance of the funeral home director uh, and then a funeral a week or two later. No, the body wouldn't last that long. It had to happen immediately. Here's, here's what that means. This lady's son just died just died. And not just a son. Look at verse 12. He was his mother's only son. And she was a widow. The scene is becoming more painful. Her only son, likely her only remaining male protector and provider, which would have been terrifying just in and of itself. But then now down to the heart level, down to the emotional level, They they were walking the same funeral road that she had already walked. 
his body would be laid next to the bones of her husband. This son would have likely been the last remaining bit of her husband in the world. Possibly the last living link. The last one that still had his facial structure, still had his smile, his laugh, now gone. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, they, mourners would come for these funeral processions and, and they would be weeping loudly with the party. And it, it really was to give voice to, to the mourning, but also to, to help cover the, the sobs of the family. Make no mistake, this was an awful scene. A mother, a widow, no less, bearing her child. There are few griefs more bitter than this. And so Jesus of Nazareth walks into this scene and, and, and we read these profound words in, in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Jesus saw and he felt. He saw what was happening and he felt it. Jesus wasn't, he wasn't on his way to fulfill his ministry checklist for the day. He wasn't itching to get somewhere more important. He didn't do like we do uh, to pull over to the side of the road and check our email while the funeral procession goes by. No, he saw her. His eyes locked on to this mother. Through her tears, she probably didn't see him, but he saw her. And praise God that he sees us in our grief. He sees us. When you think you're alone, the only one in a room, and grief is overwhelming, no, he sees you. He feels compassion toward you. And he sees people that we would miss, that we would walk by. No one is beyond his sight. And after responding to this humble centurion, He's now responding to a really broken situation, to immense grief. Notice she doesn't even have words. She's not even asking Jesus for anything. No, Jesus is simply drawn in to her brokenness. He is, he is near to the brokenhearted. When you are grieving and you don't know how to cry out, Christian, know that he's near to you. You may not know how to pray, but know that he sees you. His compassion is to you. And look what he tells her at the end of verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, don't weep. Which if you or I said that, we should be hauled out, right? We should be removed from the situation, taken to another place. But that's because none of us could pull off verse 14. That leads us to number four. Jesus confronts death. So I want you to look with me now at the, one of the most ridiculous moments in the Bible. He tells the woman not to weep. And then in verse 14, then he came up and he touched the open coffin and the pallbearers stopped. Of course they stopped. There's somebody walking up to the coffin. I have to imagine Jesus' group with him going, hey, Jesus, don't do that. Stop, Jesus. Don't touch the coffin, Jesus. It's dirty. That's unclean. That's gross. Stop, Jesus. 
Jesus, you're interrupting a funeral. And, I, and I, I'm sure they had that moment where they, where they did go, oh, Jesus, you're interrupting a funeral. So he touches the coffin. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. Jesus speaks a command to a dead body. Speaking of a powerful command. And so what does the dead body have to do? Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak. There are barely words to do this scene justice. The dead man sat up and began to speak. How is the rest of verse 15, not just Luke going, what? I mean, how is he just not going, this is ridiculous. In the course of three verses, Jesus has walked into a town. He sees the grief of a mother and then a dead man is alive and speaking. And then we read that, he, that Jesus, he gave the son to his mother. The widow's dead son is given back to her. And how did the people react? Verse 16, then fear came over everyone. They're amazed. They're going, what in the world? They're amazed at Jesus. They glorify God. They're worshiping God. And then they're saying, a great prophet has come among us. Some of them are saying God has visited his people. People are connecting the dots. They're, they're going, this can only be someone who's sent by God. Only prophets do this sort of stuff. Elijah, Elisha. That's what this has to be. Someone from God. Or maybe even better than that. Maybe, maybe we're somehow in the presence of, of God himself. Maybe God's visiting his people. A dead person coming back to life. Something's happened. Somehow God is with us. And then in verse 17, this report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. And I kind of want to close with this. So what report spread through Judea and the vicinity? Was it, we have someone over here raising all the dead. Was it take your loved ones to Jesus because he's reversing the funerals? It, it kind of begs the question, is that the news of Jesus? Is that the news of the kingdom that every funeral will be interrupted? Some of you have prayed with tears that God would heal someone. Some have prayed for a son or a daughter or a mother or a sister, a brother, even that God would raise the dead. As a church, we've prayed for so many. We prayed for Michelle Wistrand. We prayed for Jan Guger and John Perkle and Denise Boriak. But Jesus doesn't reverse a lot of funerals, does he? Isn't this the sting of death? The overwhelming agony and pain of losing to that wicked foe again. Many of us live 
in the wake of a funeral that was never interrupted. You lost someone you loved and even now it stings. And so a story like this, a story of a resurrection, the funeral of a young boy that was, that was undone. This story can, can kind of feel like a bitter cup, can it? But, but let me say this, or, or it can be like just a little taste spoon, just a little taste of the coming kingdom of God. This scene is the ultimate reminder that the last funeral is coming. In the new earth, funeral homes will be boarded up. No more funeral homes, no more nasty potato salad after the service, no more pallbearers. It's all done for. They'll all be cupcake shops, I think, the funeral homes will be. That's just, an, uh, just a guess. That's not an actual biblical interpretation. In the new earth, cemeteries will be playgrounds. That's what's to come. But as we walk now through the valley of the shadow of death, how can we be sure of what's coming? How can we walk by faith and not be overcome by the sting of death? And I'll submit this. I think here's our only hope. Our only hope is that 16 chapters from this moment, another grieving mother will follow the funeral procession as the body of her son, the only son of the father, Jesus, as he is carried to the edge of town and laid in a tomb. That's our only hope. And that when that stone was placed over the tomb, his funeral was over. It ended. No one interrupted the funeral of Jesus. His friends grieved. They walked away. His mother wept. Jesus' death was complete. And so when Jesus, the son of God, the lamb of God, when his heart fluttered, when it, when it sprung back into rhythm, when his blood supply started going back to his fingers, back down into his legs, when he stood up and he walked out of the grave, that resurrection moment began a countdown, a countdown to another funeral. Because the Savior is alive, the death of death is coming. And no one will grieve at that funeral. No one will grieve the loss of death. What a day it will be when death dies. But it's not quite time yet, is it? Death's funeral isn't quite here yet. But it is coming. It is coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read this, starting in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ to the first fruits, afterward, 
at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And when death dies, when this happens, it will be as though every funeral is reversed. Paul said the dead in Christ won't just sit up, they will rise up. And if you are in Christ, you will have your young man get up moment. So we wait. And even as we wait, we suffer. And we even grieve bitterly sometimes. But Jesus sees us. He knows our grief. He is coming to us. And the very one who moves toward us in our grief, he's the same Lord. He's the same Lord that's going to destroy death forever. So what is our only hope in the joy of life? And what is our only hope in the grief of death? Christ alone. Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, it is death stings. The pain of, of grief and, and the bitter pill that is death, it is not our friend. No, it is our foe and you will destroy your foe forever one day. We hold fast to that hope. But would you, would you be with us today? Would you be near to those who grieve? Would you remind them of the resurrection that is to come? Would you be with those who are sick and who are longing for healing, those who are longing for help? Would you remind them of the word of your power? You can do mighty things for them. God, you, you can do mighty things for us. So we come to you our only hope, our only comfort. And we thank you. Would you draw us to our knees again to worship you, to love you, to, to know you. Be near to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.